Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, a question of trade. As the world opens up after the COVID pandemic, will protectionism permeate 2023? Global trade last year finally picked up following the pandemic drop. Trading goods rose 10% to $25 trillion. Trade services were up 15% to $7 trillion. Will that trend continue in 2023 as China throws its doors open wide for business once again? Or will a creeping protectionism get in the way? At the recent World Economic Forum in Davos, I spoke to the Director General of the World Trade Organization, Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala. Here's what she thinks. Action is a multilateralism. It's very clear to me that, you know, cooperation can happen where there are multilateral institutions and organizations. Mine is one, of course, so I'm totally biased, the World Trade Organization, but we provide a forum for 164 members, including China, which can bring people together, bring countries together to solve some really important problems. We have problems of the uh, uh, commons, uh, global commons like climate change, the pandemic. We have issues on high food prices, high energy prices, Without cooperation and coming together in these organizations, it's very difficult to be able to talk. You've got the G20, you've got WTO, you have the IMF, you have the World Bank, you have other organizations. You mentioned the pandemic and obviously that had a huge impact on trade, especially with regard to supply chains. Um, how do you see recovery progressing? Well, uh, first of all, we can't say we're out of the pandemic completely, but of course, we are glad that things are, seem to be getting better. And I think with, with that, the issues with supply chains have been improving. You know, ports that were uh, shut have opened. Uh, Shanghai was shut for a period of time, but that opened uh, some time back. And, you know, the, 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 the logistics of supply chains, I think, has undergone quite a lot of work. Digitization has really helped. So it's not that we're out of the woods, but I think we, we are in a better place. Freight rates have come down, and that's one indication. Of course, it's also because consumer demand is down, but at least freight rates are coming back to what they were before. So supply chains are winding, but there's a bigger issue, I think, with supply chains in general. During this, the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, we've seen that there are vulnerabilities on these supply chains. Perhaps there's a concentration of manufacturing of certain products in, in certain parts of the world. So what is being talked about and was talked about in Davos is how to build resilience. And I'll give you an example, pharmaceuticals. The African continent imports 90% of its pharmaceuticals and 99% of vaccines. That leaves the continent vulnerable to external uh, actors should they need. So the issue is, in those circumstances, should we think about decentralizing some of the manufacturing of pharmaceuticals to places like uh, Africa, for instance? Ten countries export 80% of the vaccines in the world. So there's a great concentration. So to diversify supply chains, what we're advocating is that we should try to use the diversification as an opportunity to include countries and regions that were not included in the first wave of globalization. And we're calling it re-globalization. 
And speaking of opening up and the opportunities that are out there, what do you think China widening its doors to the outside world by reopening its economy is going to do for trade in 2023? Well, I think China opening up is, is a net positive uh, for the outside. First of all, the consumer demand within China. First of all, the manufacturing, getting back to normal. So I think for the world economy, it's a good thing. Of course, we have to worry about what happens with the spread of uh, COVID during the new year and so on and what impact that will have. But I think all in all, uh, it's positive. China is such an engine of growth for the world economy that having it open up again is, is a good thing. And we're talking a lot about cooperation, um, but we're in the shadow of some very aggressive actions, for example, by the United States with the Inflation Reduction Act um, and the Chips and Science Act, which they seem squarely aimed at China. Are, are we in danger of entering a protectionist cycle? Well, from the point of view of the WTO, of course, uh, you know, pr protectionism, we're about open trade and opening up trade. But on the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act and so on, those members, like the European Union and uh, South Korea, for instance, who have issues with the Act, uh, what we've urged them is to have a dialogue with the United States. That's the way it works at the WTO. We certainly don't want to be at the receiving end of trade frictions. And I think that dialogue is happening. The EU is having a dialogue with the United States, I think Korea also, both of them from different perspectives. And I actually think that's making progress. You talk about some frictions. Some say that, that China takes advantage of WTO um, for its own development, while other countries don't benefit so much. What's your take on that? Let's put it this way. Globalization has lifted more than a billion people out of poverty. And it has had net benefits for China, for, for Europe, for the United States, for most parts of the world. There were people who were left behind. There were poor people in rich countries and poor regions of, of the world that were not included in the globalization. Uh, so we need to correct that in this new wave of globalization. Of course, at the WTO, one of the things that we try to do is assure a level playing field uh, for everyone. And uh, there are uh, complaints that there, there's not a level playing field, that there's suspicion some members may be subsidizing, which may be unfair to others. Again, I urge members to talk to each other. It's a member-driven organization. So when there's a problem, it's not coming to the secretariat. Our role is to say, okay, how can we help you members so you can talk to each other? That's what we would like to see, more dialogue, more solution to problems. Do you think there could be more competition? I mean, what might create deeper competition in certain sectors? If labor-intensive sectors send their work overseas where labor is cheaper, is, is that positive or negative in terms of China, for example, shifting to having more high-quality growth rather than high-speed growth? Well, you know, uh, China has decided to the dual-track approach, not only to look at external growth, but also internal growth. And I think that it's a good thing for the Chinese economy. Um, all levers that can be sources of growth within an economy, both internal and external, uh, they're good. And I think that China pursuing that is a good thing. Competition is a good thing. And I think business, often I think government tries maybe sometimes too hard to decide for business what it should do. Uh, so we should leave business to decide. In fact, in the, on this issue of supply chains and building resilience, Businesses are making their decisions on how they build this resilience. 
And I think that more competition is good and we should leave businesses to decide how they compete. Do you think that, that cooperation is important for, for global trade? You talk about resilience and building that. Or is there part of you that really fears that the world is really going to fragment further, taking into account all the geopolitical pressures? There are a lot of geopolitical tensions now. That's undoubtedly the case. There are tensions between China and the United States, between China and the EU, between the EU and the US, between Russia and Ukraine. There's a lot of geopolitical tension. And I think that um, the best thing is to bear in mind that decoupling of fragmentation is costly to the world economy. We've actually done some work at the WTO on this issue. We've tried to model if the world were to break into two trading blocks, what would that mean? And we found it would be very costly to lead to a 5% decrease in global GDP in the longer term. That's like saying we lose the whole economy of Japan. So this is not something the world can afford. It will be even worse for emerging markets and developing countries, like double-digit uh, losses, around 12% in, in, in GDP of these countries. That's huge. So for those reasons, we're very strongly advocating that decoupling, fragmentation, this is not really the best way for the world to go. And we cannot solve many world problems if we decouple. You cannot solve climate change. The world needs to cooperate to solve issues of climate change, even the pandemic. You can't solve it alone. So there are many, many reasons why decoupling is not a good thing. Director General, it's been an absolute treat talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that's the view of the World Trade Organization. But what more specifically might 2023 hold for trade with developing economies? In Davos, I also spoke to Rebecca Greenspan, Secretary General of the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. I asked her about the biggest challenges she thinks currently face the world's most vulnerable nations. I think that is this cascading crisis that are of systemic nature, yes? It's not something that happened in one country because of the behavior of one government. It is the pandemic, it is the war in Ukraine and the cost of living crisis, is the climate change and the effect of that on the countries and the economies. And, and really the countries don't know what to do because they cannot get out of this alone. Well, goods trade in 2022 was up. 10% to $25 trillion. Trade services rose 15% to $7 trillion. Do you see that, that trend continuing in 2023? Or will, as Unktad puts it, geopolitical frictions get in the way? Yes, absolutely. Uh, 2022 was not a bad year from a trade perspective, but all the growth of 2022 was in the first semester. The second semester was already negative. And this is mainly because of the expectation of recession in the global economy and also because of the geopolitical tensions. One of those geopolitical tensions, or frictions if you like, is the introduction of the US Chips and Science Act, which is now in force. Many people think that's aimed at China. I mean, what's your take on how that might affect global trade? Well, I think that the restrictions on global trade and more nationalistic and protectionist policies in general are, are bad for most of the developing world, yes? The medium size and small size countries depend on trade for their growth and on, on for their prosperity. And obviously that is a problem, yes. And in terms of trade with China, how do you see that 
developing in the short to medium term? Well, we have always said that decoupling the trade systems is a bad idea. <laughs> that the, we need China and we need the US as members and part of a global economy, not of two different systems and, and two different economies. And that will be key for the developing world. At the 20th Party Conference, President Xi Jinping said he, he talked about high quality development and with an emphasis on new industrialization. And I wonder how you think that might affect global trade. Well, one of the good news for 2023 is China. Yes, and you, you have been feeling that in Davos, yes. And for the developing countries, no doubt, because China is a major trader with the rest of the developing world. Now, commodity dependence is a problem for the developing world. So industrialization, diversification of the productive structure of these countries is key. So in that sense, I align completely with what the President uh, Xi Jinping said, you know, if we don't have value added, if we don't have industrialization, if we don't have diversification of our economies, so we cannot create the jobs and the prosperity that our young people is waiting for. You mentioned jobs, so I'd like to bring in the Belt and Road Initiative, um, which is going to have its 10th anniversary um, this year. What do you make of that in terms of what it means for global cooperation, growth, job creation, and the future of trade relations. I think that everything that adds to the cooperation and solidarity and investment, because what we have seen since the uh, 2008 crisis is a downturn on investment and productivity. So whatever can boost productivity and investment in the developing world is a, a has a huge value in terms of our future perspective for sustainable development. Something else that has, has played on the minds of many of the, the delegates here and is, a, is central to a lot of the conversations is the ongoing war in Ukraine. Now, you've been instrumental in leading one of the UN task force, haven't you, um, to broker grain deals um, and get those exports flowing again. What impact is that going to have on food prices? No, we are very worried. We are not out of the woods. You know, the food crisis is still around the corner. We were able to broke the deals uh, that we signed in Istanbul uh, for the opening of the, of the Black Sea for the exports of grain from Ukraine and the unimpeded exports of grain and fertilizers from the Russian Federation. This is a packet and we need to make it work for the food insecurity crisis to be really managed and avoided. Uh, and we are not there yet. It has been a very good news that we were able to have the agreements. The Black Sea Grain Initiative is, is working and, and the exports from the Black Sea, but we are very worried about the fertilizers. And there is a, you know, the price of fertilizer today is pricing out the small farmers of the developing countries. And if they cannot have access to fertilizers at, you know, reasonable prices, the crisis of affordability of 2022 will be a crisis of availability of food in 2023. And that's something that we don't want to see. So the Black Sea Initiative isn't enough. We're not where we need to be to, to get good food flowing. It is it's setting the right objectives, but we need cooperation to make it real. So we have to continue. It has to continue after uh, the 18th of March. 
that they were that is the role the new rollover of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, but we need to get fertilizers at the volume and at the price that the world needs for the small farmers to be able to sow and to harvest at the levels that the world needs to avoid the food insecurity. What, what positive steps do you see being taken for the international community to, to make itself more resilient? I, I suppose, do we, do we treat forums like this as kind of self-help for businesses and government? Well, I always thought, I have always think that, they, you know, it, to have a conversation with different points of view you know, is it, very important. I would like to hear more the voice of the developing countries in these gatherings, yes? And not think about the world economy only, you know, going around the big economies and the economies that can make it for themselves, yes? I would like to have the examples of the countries that are really suffering, that have a debt problem, that are not getting the financial support that they need to be more center stage. So rather than waiting for big news, big deals, big agreements being signed, should we be celebrating more the small wins? And if so, give me an example of some that we could be shouting about louder. Yeah, probably, yeah, probably we need both because we need the big things for the systemic yeah. issues, but uh, we need also the micro, yes, what is happening on the ground. I think that there are some good news, yes, around the corner at the end. Probably here we have heard voices saying the recession won't be so deep, and that's good news. The problem is that there are many countries that will suffer, you know, very deeply whatever is happening already. And uh, I think that we need to pay more attention to those. So what are you hoping will realistically change in 2023 when it comes to coordination, solidarity, collective action? Well, I would like to see the uh, scale and speed in international financial support for the climate transformation and, to, and for the fiscal space that the countries need to come more <laughs> into play. I would like more policy coherence at the global economy, you know, what the, the, the hike in interest rates of central banks have hurt developing countries very badly. I would like to see reversal in the flows that are going now from the south to the north. I would like to see the flows going from the north to the south in investment for, for future uh, growth. So I would like uh, to see much more <laughs> have, uh, of the good of the good things that we are doing, but maybe not at the scale and with the speed that the world needs it. Absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, Rebecca Brinska. Thank you very much, and, and thank you for giving me this opportunity. Still to come here on the agenda, the head of the International Labour Organization on what he thinks future trade will mean for jobs. Welcome back to the agenda. If global trade is to get back on track in 2023, what might that mean for the jobs market? The International Labour Organization's outlook is rather gloomy, with its recent report suggesting global jobs growth will halve this year. I spoke to Director General Gilbert Hugbault. Not only is it terrifying, but uh, for us, uh, unfortunately, it was not too much of surprise because we already saw um, what the, the multiple crises or multiple challenges that the world is going through. Uh, the impact is going to have 
Um, first of all, from the pandemic on the COVID-19 to the geopolitics, the war in uh, Ukraine, the, inf the inflation, the uh, and, and other protracted wars, uh, all of that combining are having serious uh, um, challenges for us. But your report also says that people might have to start to accept lower quality jobs. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. how long do you think that this stress on the labour market is going to last? Uh, we, we are afraid it's going to last a few, um, few years. Uh, what is happening? If you look at a uh, uh, developed um, economy, namely the global north, the, there is, the, the market is heating up, so which is kind of good, good news. Uh, you know, if you take the US, the unemployment rate is uh, um, very, very low, etc. Uh, right now. But, but then if you take the low-income countries and the emerging economy, they are still struggling with the impact of COVID-19. Although at the beginning of year 2022, um, we, we, we were picking up, even in the low-income countries, from the hour of work lost during COVID, then the impact of all those multiple crises I mentioned by the third quarter um, has wiped out. So what is happening now, even when you have new jobs created uh, in the low-income um, countries, it's really more on the informal almost, uh, economy, which comes with uh, very, very low, if any, um, protection, be it social protection or kind of protection. So job seekers um, have now to accept jobs that of poor quality because of lack of protection, lack of, uh, lack of voice, and very, uh, very likely uh, where they, they uh, at the minimum wage um, possible. Let's talk about um, China, uh, because after 40 years of high-speed growth, high-speed economic development, now they're pursuing high-quality um, development with this emphasis on new industrialization. So I wonder what your take is then on what that's going to mean, that different development path, what mm -hmm. it's going to mean mm -hmm. for, for the Chinese economy and for economic growth in general, because it was a very big labor market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it remains, it remain, and China will remain a very big labor, uh, labor market. And we all know that the, 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 the economic growth um, could suffer uh, depending on uh, the situation of, of the impact of COVID, which unfortunately has been picking up in recent uh, um, um, weeks. And that will have an impact, we are, we are afraid. It will have an impact on the job market, even in China. And given the size of China and its uh, role in the global job market, that could have an impact on the global um, aggregate situation. Let me tell you something that President Xi said. He promised to increase international personnel exchanges and make the best use of talent of all types to fully harness their potential. But that isn't the case, is it, in, in, in the, a large part of the world? I mean, we've seen the United States putting limits uh, on subjects that Chinese students can, can take and can learn. So. What, how do you think that's going to play out? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, nothing will replace or shall replace social or political dialogue. Um, uh, I think what the, the, the quote from President Xi and uh, uh, what you said about the U.S., in my view, does not stop to have a, uh, an agreement um, um, through political, um, uh, political dialogue. We do believe that those type of exchanges are part of the way forward. We talk more and more about uh, mobility in the job market, uh, um, migrant workers uh, um, in, in, in compensating countries where we do have shortages, or the, the importance of scaling and reskilling when we talk about job transition or when we talk about um, platform economies and, and, and so forth. So I believe globally it's doable.
Well, let's talk about foreign investment then for China and its One Belt, One Road initiative. Mm-hmm. They say it benefits local employment, and that's what you're talking about, mm-hmm. reskilling uh, and training. But not everyone agrees. I mean, China's investment um, has been accused of being a debt trap. Some say it's a, a new form of colonialism. What do mm-hmm. you think? It's a very complex. Um, <laughs> it's a very, very complex situation. First of all, it's political, it's economic, mm-hmm. and it's also about a matter of geopolitics or powers in the, yeah. in the world. Let's, uh, let's face it. I can give you uh, uh, an answer from both perspectives as ILO and also as African on, on that because a lot of those investments are also in Africa, in, uh, in, in Asia. Uh, what is very important, I think, is to ensure that, yeah, when you invest in different countries, you really have a sustained positive outcome for the local communities. For me, it's really essential. The debt situation is very important that for every country to really ensure that their, um, the national debt is uh, within um, limits and under um, proper management on that. And if countries, and we do know, we do know that some countries, low-income countries, are currently debt-stressed. This is factual, and, and those facts we have to, to look in, uh, in, into them. The, the point that really, and for me, all of that comes down to is the ability of the countries, their capacity to negotiate. Well, Director General, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.